Hi everyone, welcome to Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. Today we're going to be interviewing an infectious disease doctor, so let's get into it. Today we're going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Aisha Thomas-Sincere, an infectious disease specialist who did her residency at Wayne State University and her fellowship at the Medical University of South Carolina. Uh, so. Why do, why do you believe that COVID-19 is spreading so fast across the country and especially in Florida? Okay. Well, hi, Faz. Thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. So I guess we have to think back to what is this virus and what's happening here. So as you hear, we're in a pandemic. And that means there's an infection that's spreading to all countries of the world. So I think we, the virus is spreading because that is what it innately wants to do. The virus wants to infect human hosts until we're at a point of steady state, or we call that herd immunity. So when maybe around 70% of the population has been infected, then it'll you know, stop spreading at this point. We've all been exposed. So to answer your question, I'll say the virus is spreading across the world and particularly in Florida because not enough people have immunity to the virus so they can catch it. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> and the second question would be, what are the most important things that people should be doing to protect themselves from getting infected? Okay, so let's think about what the virus wants. The virus wants to infect human beings across the world. And it usually can do so through a, a respiratory route. It can get in through your, your oral cavity, your nose, your pharynx, even your eyes, your mucous membranes. And it can get you sick by giving you uh, usually a respiratory infection first before it be, may become a little more systemic in your body. So to prevent infection, you primarily want to prevent getting the virus in for your, your mucous membranes, your oropharynx, and um, the ways to do that could include wearing a mask, wearing goggles. It can also be spread on surfaces, so you'd want to make sure you protect your hands. Some people wear gloves, and also washing your hands frequently or using sanitizer to kill the virus from your hand surfaces would be ways to help reduce the transmission. Thank you. Um, the next question was, when should someone go get tested for COVID-19? Like, after what would the, should they go get tested? Okay. I guess that brings us to symptoms and also to something you might hear, asymptomatic. So when someone is symptomatic, they have signs of an infection. So that can include fevers, flu-like symptoms, a sore throat, a cough, shortness of breath, some people have diarrhea. And, and conversely, asymptomatic means you may not even know you have an infection. So in terms of when people should get tested, certainly I would say if they have symptoms. So I mentioned some of the symptoms you can have that will prompt testing. And sometimes we also want to just test people on a general scale, which is asymptomatic people, to know if um, to know that the amount of exposure in a population. Sometimes, for example, after you, you saw in Minneapolis, after the George, George Floyd death, there was a lot of protesting there, but testing was extremely high because of the 
exposures to people to each other in those protests. So testing was ramped up significantly and some of those people were not even symptomatic. So I think you can get tested if you think you've been exposed or if you have symptoms. Um, and another question that people have been asking about these tests themselves are mm -hmm. how reliable and accurate they actually are. Okay, so I guess it brings us into what type of testings are, are testing is available, right Faz? So one of the first things is, that's available is PCR testing, which is a polymerase chain reaction testing for actively replicating virus. And we take those tests usually through the nose or the throat and sometimes a bronchoscopy specimen or sputum. That's one type of test. In terms of how reliable it is, generally speaking, it's in the upper 60s to 70F percent sensitive. So that means out of every 100 people, 60 to 70%, if I test you the first time, could be positive, could be a true positive. So to get it higher, you have to test the same person again. And if I retest the same person, it might make the test in the, in the 90, upper 90%, on the lower 90% sensitive. Meaning if I test one person twice, I will catch the virus 90% of the time. But that one is the PCR. But there's a lot of other tests. There's rapid blood tests. These are not very reliable. They can be 50% because in some of those tests, they're looking for what you call an antigen, which is a type of like a little piece of the virus. And there are other tests that's called antibodies, which is now looking for your body's reaction to the virus. But sometimes the antibody tests can go the other way where it can tell you you have a positive test when you really don't because it was reacting to maybe another type of virus. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And if someone does test positive for COVID-19 from one of these tests, what should they be doing? Okay. So it depends. You have to monitor to see what kind of symptoms you're having. There are some symptoms that are more or less more life-threatening than others. So for example, if you are a young and healthy person and you have a fever, you do not feel short of breath, you just feel like you have the flu, somebody like that may be able to stay home and recover on their own over the next seven days or so. While somebody who has risk factors, which I'm sure you've been hearing about Faz, things like diabetes or heart disease, asthma, lung problems, kidney problems, and they find they're getting short of breath, they should go into the emergency room because they might require oxygen and sometimes blood thinners, steroids, and other things to help them. Thank you. Uh, okay. And now as states are beginning to open up, what's the biggest thing that people should be doing to keep themselves safe? Okay. Okay. On this one, I would say it depends on the state. Um, if you look at a site, there's Johns Hopkins School of Medicine that's been monitoring the pandemic. They show all the states in terms of the number of cases per day. In a case like New York, where you remember there was a huge outbreak, the cases per day are down. While in Florida and Arizona, the cases per day are higher and higher each time. So it's showing that there could be a possible surge in that situation. 
So the things to do to help protect yourself when states are reopening would be to continue to wear the mask. Wearing a mask protects other people from your germs. And when they wear a mask, it protects you from their germs, right? And also the reason we say social distancing is because generally speaking, if there are droplets, that is someone spits or coughs, it's about six feet, before, you know, usually six feet, most of those droplets will dissipate before they can get to you. So you'll still want to continue the social distancing. You'd still want to continue the hand washing because remember it can get on surfaces. You'd still want to continue. They say when you grocery shop and get stuff, you should leave the boxes out for a day in case there's any viruses on the surfaces and things like that are still very important. Thank you. And also when schools start to open up this fall, how yes. do you think that they should be opened up? Should it be online, in person? And if they're in person, like what sort of safety precautions should there be? Right. So we spoke earlier, remember I mentioned that viruses, the virus is a pandemic and it will, it'll kind of peter off or kind of settle down when enough people have been infected or tested. So let's say, you know, in a certain state. So I think it should be state by state and county by county, if I have to be honest, because you can know in your area if you have enough testing, if there are pockets of people that can be spreading it and the risk factor for children. Because look, we've had the first case of a teenager who died of coronavirus here in Florida just a few days ago. So I will say at this point, looking at Florida in particular, with the rising cases, it is probably something that should be very cautiously looked at. And I would limit exposure of a large number of children in groups if we can avoid it until we have a better handle on how the cases are going, how the spike is happening, and if we have a better handle on controlling the situation. I will say in a case like possibly if you have a tertiary level uh, kids in, in, for example, in universities in a huge auditorium where they can really space apart the, the, the students, and you know, monitor the you know maybe monitor the temperatures, make sure they're cleaning the surfaces. It's possible in a situation like that, in elementary schools where you have students that tend to hug and kiss each other just because you know they're more uh, socially. Uh, that's how they play. You might want to be more cautious in that situation too. Thank you. And like adding on to that, what impacts do you think that COVID nineteen will have on society after this pandemic is over? Yes, that's a very interesting question, Faz. So looking at it now, we've already seen that there have been marked changes in, for example, how we travel, right? You can see now that travel has been restricted to various countries. So I think that this will continue in the future where, given that people are aware of this pandemic, the huge economic impact is had worldwide, people will be very cautious about travel now. I believe it will be a big impact on the cruise uh, travel, you know, on cruises, on cruise lines, and also in terms of healthcare systems, and maybe requiring people to even quarantine for a period of time, even when they open up, you know, all the countries again. The other thing could be in terms of uh, financially, money, you know, how money is handled in terms of cash itself. I see that digital payments are being more preferred at this time, right? Because you're saying money has, you know, it's something we touch and could have viruses on it. I think that could be something that's affected as well. 
and uh, possibly also how we, how we think of healthcare in the future. Because you did mention earlier what else we can do to help with prevent, protecting ourselves. I think boosting our immune system is one because the people with a bit of weaker immune systems are more at risk. So maybe wellness will be more of a priority for most people to focus on how to do so in healthcare. Thank you. And also a lot of people have been talking about like the vaccine and many are hoping that'll end the pandemic. Like what are your opinions on how the vaccine will affect us? And do you think that'll put a stop to all this or the pandemic will continue? Okay, hmm. that's a good question too, Faz. I guess I have to look back in the past to think about how to answer that. Um, in terms of the particular virus, the coronavirus, it's, um, it's a member of the SARS family. We've had a previous, uh, well, it wasn't quite a pandemic, but an epidemic about 10 years ago, if you recall. And since then, they were working on a vaccine for that virus, but it was not successful because the virus tends to mutate. So on this, in this occasion as well, I suspect the virus will act like it's for its father and might have a, you know, might mutate because it has done that already this time. The virus that uh, affected China is not the same virus that's affecting us now because it's mutated already. So I do think that even if you look at another thing like influenza, we make vaccines yearly because the viruses shift, they, have, they change the antigens. So I do not see that a vaccine will be a total panacea to cure the whole situation. I think the vaccine itself will be a challenge in terms of how efficacious or how well it works. Okay, so you have to kind of think of the actual virus. You also have to think of the actual people who get the, the vaccine. The vaccine is trying to make your immune system have a reaction. So when you see a true virus, you'll already have antibodies. But many people, they do not make a response. Their immune system doesn't, doesn't work very well, even if they do get the vaccine. So I could say it could help, but it's not something I will put, say 100% will be useful. Thank you. Um, and now I'm going to move on to questions that like a lot of like other people have asked. Okay. So, um, like, so one of the questions was, how, how much of an effect do masks really have on the pandemic? Okay. I do. So if you think about it, um, previously you can see how we in the United States were looking at masking. Before April, it was something where we did not encourage masking much, if you can think back to that time. The CDC then changed it back in, you know, late April, early May to say they, rec they recommend masking. And why? Because it can catch large droplets because I talked about the droplets that can be, um, the, that the infectious viral particles are in because it's spread from usually your mouth, your throat, your mucous membranes. So the mask will capture the large droplets and stop them from being spread. However, not all masks are created equal. Okay, so there's some masks that are very finely made and they can capture even smaller particles. So these are more effective. But I will say that any mask shows some measure of effect in stopping the viral transmission of large droplets. So if I wear a mask and you wear a mask, it decreases the chance much more than if either of one wear a mask you know, or if none of us wear a mask. 
um, I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. And another question that people were asking is, um, to what extent is surgery safe during the pandemic? Okay. So they did find in New York, when the pandemic was really becoming at its peak, patients who were coming in for surgery, even if they did not have any symptoms, they had the virus. As soon as they had surgery, their immune system is a little weak, they would get very sick. So you saw that they decided to limit elective surgeries or surgeries that were not you know, life-threatening during the pandemic. So now things have opened up again. They're now allowing elective surgeries again. So that again increases the possible risk of people who do not have an infection, um, do not have an uh, active symptom that could still have the infection. So many places have made the standard to test patients who are going to have surgery, whether or not they have symptoms, okay? So that's one helpful way to do it. However, this is not universal. And even in our hospital, they don't test every patient who is going to have surgery. So I call it still a possible risk. Thank you. Um, another question that people had was, how can the United States and countries around the world improve in their preventive defense against diseases like COVID-19 in the future? Hmm. So I guess we have to think about a pandemic in general, right, Faz? So there have been pandemics throughout history. Somehow it seems to be almost a phenomenon that nature does to sort of cull the population maybe. You can remember 100 years ago when there was the Spanish flu. It went through the population and killed millions of people. So now we were overdue for a pandemic, we said. I'm not sure if you ever saw Bill Gates talk about eight years ago talking about it, but we were overdue for a pandemic just because by history, every hundred years ago or so, something will come by to cause this sort of uh, pandemonium. So, to pre so, so I'm not sure, seeing that it's a natural thing that occurs, I'm not sure we can 100% stop or prevent it, but we can see a pattern. In this particular virus, it was a translocation or a movement from animals to humans because you know there are viruses that affect different you know categories the animals or humans and in this case they said this jumped from a pangolin to a human you know with an intermediate host so they're now looking at where it happened it happened in a wet market market in 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 china right in wuhan province you saw that so there's talking about limiting um, how people are exposed to these animals because most of these animals could be sick. They were sort of, you know, sick, hanging, you know, hanging in the market. They're, they, you know, they just, they like the animals to be sort of alive, to say it's alive, but it's sick and unhealthy. So those exposures are higher risk. So they're talking about limiting that. Um, other things we can do as a, as a world, of course, as I mentioned, the immune system, because they found a few things. For example, um, you know, vitamin D is critical to your immune system, right? Okay. And they found things like high fructose corn syrup. It inhibits your absorption and processing of vitamin D. So they found in, in vitro, in rats, for example, and in, in animal studies that, uh, you know, rats felt fed, fed a high fructose diet. They don't do as well with their immune system. So I think we can look at that. As a, as a world, as a people, to eat healthier maybe and limit our exposure to harmful things for our immune system. That's going to be another way. Thank you. Um, and then 
And the other question about how much coordination is there between like, is there between infectious disease doctors around the world? Wow, that is another one too. Now I'll tell you what, after this virus came out, we all had our ears to the ground as infectious disease doctors. There is was, there was a society that we have, you know, but it's a, there's an infectious disease society of America. There's a European infectious disease society. Um, and we try to share information and there's WhatsApp groups and chat rooms and so on. Um, but before this, I don't think it was as coordinated as it could have been. So let's say after the virus came out in China, what we did was we were waiting for the data to see what to do here. So initially, the Chinese data said, do not use steroids, do not intubate patients immediately and things like that. So that's what the data, that is what we immediately said we would do here. Now it came to, for example, it was in Europe. We heard a little bit of different things about the people that it would affect, you know, immunosuppressed and older people. When it came here, we added some stuff to the story, realized it can affect minorities more. It can affect not necessarily people like the asthma and COPD, we were thinking that would be the huge one, but we found that risk factors such as oxidative stress became much more critical because it's a virus that affects your vascular system to a large extent, causing clots. We saw that in the autopsies that was released in New England Journal of Medicine a month ago. So as the information evolves, as it affects different people worldwide, we get more information. So I'd say as infectious disease doctors and coordinating with each other, we had to, we, we still have a long way to go in terms of getting information that's, um, you know, scientific right, rigorous studies are still being processed now and finding a way to disseminate the information in a timely way. Although with this pandemic, I have seen a, a marked improvement in how it's done, in sharing information worldwide. Uh, thank you so much. That's all the questions. I appreciate you coming and uh, responding to all this. It's my pleasure. And um, you all stay safe. You too. So thank you for listening to this interview with Dr. Aisha thomas here, who works at the Sebastian River Medical Center. For your going to be bringing you more interviews like this along with normal content so thank you for listening to infectious your guide to life during coronavirus